You're listening to Get Fed Today, one podcast designed to provide the Christian a hearty Bible study five days a week. While our mission is to showcase a variety of different Bible teachers, if you want to access more content from a particular pastor, simply listen to the end of the episode for additional information. On behalf of the entire team at Get Fed Today, it is our prayer that today's episode encourages your growth in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Okay, well, this, I, I told you before, because of my, you know, my time being that I have this Sunday, next Sunday, and the following Sunday, we wouldn't have time to uh, go verse by verse through the entire book of First Timothy. So I told you I'd be cherry picking to just pick out some of the things in the book uh, that I'd like to leave you with. And then I'm going to reserve the last Sunday that I'm up here, which is the 25th, for uh, more of a topical message. And so this morning, we're going to be in First Timothy chapter 3, and we're going to be looking at the first uh, 13 verses. And uh, let me start off by saying this. Uh, the Marine Corps. The Marine Corps says we're looking for a few good men. We've got a, a newly minted Marine here. Nick Paz. Nick, why don't you stand up for a second? Nick just finished his basic training boot camp, and uh, honestly, I've seen the film. I've seen the films of it, and if you can get through that, you're one of those few good men, uh, because it is it is pretty rigorous and pretty amazing. And Nick has been part of this church since he was uh, knee high to a grasshopper, and uh, has always been a man full of a man now full of enthusiasm, and and uh, goodwill. And uh, he found his calling from the Lord to, to help to defend our country. And I, I couldn't be more proud of you, Nick. I really, I really mean that. And, and here's the thing. If you look at most organizations that are serious organizations, military, for example, the Marine Corps, serious corporations, you're going to find that the people that end up leading those organizations tend to be those who have distinguished themselves among those people who are to be led. Those that progress through the ranks of the Marine Corps or any other serious organization are people who have embraced the values, the practices, the methods of the organization they lead. I like to say it this way. If you want to be a good leader, you have to start out being a good follower. Good leadership comes from good followship. I made that word up. Thank you very much. Uh, and this is something that is drilled into people such as Nick in the, in the military, is here is the Marine way. And if you learn this way, if you embrace this way, if you prosper in this way, why then you're going to move up in the organization. And this principle is actually played out in the church as well, although we don't think of the church so much in a hierarchical structure, but the qualities that God demands for those who are called to lead the church are not different from the qualities that every Christian and every Christian man should aspire to. In other words, there's not a separate set of character virtues that apply to those that will lead the church in, in the role of pastor, elder, etc. No, they're the same. It's just that 
we make a mistake when we consider that the qualifications of elders or deacons in a church are somewhat different than those that we all as Christians should embrace and, and every man in the church should aspire to. We are spiritual leaders in our homes, guys. We have a ministry. We lead a flock, whether it's one, two, three. In Nancy Dorinsky's father's case, 16. I often say Nancy doesn't come from a big family. She comes from two big families. Um, but this is, this is what God intends is that there is a character profile of a man of God. And those that are called to lead the church are those who are living in that profile, who've embraced the message of the gospel, who have embraced the way of the word of God and live it out in their lives. And so this morning, Paul spells out for Timothy the qualifications for the leaders of the church. This is found in 1 Timothy chapter 3. And really, they are the qualities of what you might say is an exemplary man or woman even. An exemplary Christian man should look like this. And, and these are applied specifically to the, the, the way in which he first describes an elder in the church. And we're going to talk about what that term means. Or a deacon. And so we're going to look at his qualifications for these two positions. And from these two profiles that he gives us, we get a sense of what Paul is really trying to impart on this young pastor concerning the way in which the church should be run. You know, it's interesting as you look at the things that are found in the pastoral epistles, 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, Titus, you'll see that the Lord is more, more um, expressive in terms of the character graces and character virtues of the leaders of the church than he is about describing in great detail the administrative structure of the church. There's actually... A little bit of latitude in the way a church might want to structure itself. But in the way in which God describes the profile of those who lead it, there's no wiggle room. It's very clear, and we're going to see that this morning. And so if you would, please stand with me. We're going to start out by reading uh, the first seven verses now, and then we'll pick up verses 8 through 13 later in the Bible study. So here's what it says. This is a faithful saying. If a man desires the, the position of bishop... He desires a good work. A bishop then must be blameless, the husband of one wife, temperate, sober-minded, of good behavior, hospitable, able to teach, not given to wine, not violent, not greedy for money, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not covetous, one who rules his own house well, having his children in submission with all reverence. For if a man does not know how to rule his own house, how will he take care of the church of God? Not a novice, lest being puffed up with pride, he fall into the same condemnation as the devil. Moreover, he must have a good testimony among those who are outside, lest he fall into reproach and the snare of the devil. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, this, <laughs> this is an amazing profile, one to which we aspire to. And Lord, it's heartbreaking and sometimes downright discouraging when we fall short of these things, Lord. But we pray, Lord, that as we go through these qualities of those that would lead the church, Lord, we pray with all our hearts, God, that they would be true about us as well. We may not have the calling of an elder or a deacon, but Lord, we have the calling to be a child of God, to be a servant of God, to be 
a, a, an ambassador for the ministry of reconciliation. And so, Lord, as we go through these qualities, I pray you, you'd impress upon us the importance of embracing them in our own lives, Lord. Lord, as your servant this morning to impart these words to your beautiful people, I pray that nothing would issue forth from my heart or my lips that would get in the way of what you want to say to your people this morning. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Well, in this passage, the terminology that, that Paul is using to describe this leadership position in the church is bishop, which literally means overseer, one who is overseeing the flock. And as you look through scripture, and particularly the pastoral epistles, you find this word used interchangeably with the word elder. In fact, in Titus chapter 1, in verses 5 and 7, in one case in verse 5, I believe, the word uh, bishop is used, and in the other verse, uh, the word elder is used, and they're used interchangeably. And you could also add in as another kind of word that's meaning about the same thing, pastor. Now, in common usage within the church today, the pastor is usually what some churches refer to as the ruling elder, the one who is basically leading the church, and, and that individual would have the responsibilities of teaching and administration and the like we'll talk more about in a moment. Um, another distinction in the, in the church of today is that the pastor would usually be uh, someone who's employed by the church, whereas the elders might be lay ministers. That's kind of the way it's set up in our church here. Um, and we see here that he says... This is a faithful saying. If a man desires the position of a bishop, he desires a good work. Now here I'm compelled to bring this up. Um, you notice he uses the word man. The position of leadership in the church from the standpoint of the elders and particularly the pastor, very clear that this is a position that is given to men and not women. This is a huge issue in the, in the church today. In fact, I believe it's this week, Southern Baptist Convention is meeting in their annual session. And in that session, they are going to vote on whether they're going to disfellowship the Saddleback Church that's been led by Rick Warren since the beginning. And I guess there's four other churches in the same um, discussion. The reason being that Rick Warren has turned his church over to a man and a woman to lead the church. And the woman is designated as pastor, and she will be teaching in that church as well as her husband. And there are uh, four other churches, I guess, that are at least openly doing the same thing. And this has become a huge issue in the church, that, that women are... In fact, I, I saw a statistic just this week that something on the order of 50% of students in seminaries around the country today are women. And, and not every one of those is going to go into a pastoral ministry. You can go to a seminary and not be a pastor. But many of them are. And in certain denominations within the greater church, I believe the Methodist church, um, something approaching half of the pastors in the churches in the pulpits of that denomination are women. And so this, this is raising an issue in the church today that it has uh, more widespread attention and adaptation than ever before. I think back in 1960, 2% of the students in seminaries were women. And 
this is one of those issues that brings squarely into focus, is the word of God inerrant or not? Does the word of God say what it means? Or is it something that we can, in, we can stretch around a new meaning uh, to make it relevant to our times? I have a hard time with that word relevance to our times because being God who is outside of his creation, that means he's outside, he lives outside of the bounds that bound the universe, time, space, and matter. God is a spirit. God lived before time. He's timeless. How in the world could God wake up one day and say, wow, I guess that's kind of old-fashioned. <laughs> Look just above chapter 3 in my Bible. It's just a couple of verses above. And there's Paul saying in verse 12 of 1 Timothy 2, I do not permit a woman to teach or to have authority over a man but not to be in silence, but to be in silence rather, in, in the context of teaching. And this sounds very harsh. And you see also in the first Corinthian letter how Paul describes the, the hierarchy of order that God has created. God is the head of Christ. Christ is the head of man. Man is the head of woman. And these things grate on the, on the modern sensibility because women have been fighting for 100 years for equality. And we shouldn't mix up equality with order. You see, women have never been anything but equal to men. The worth of a woman in the eyes of God is no lower or higher than men. We are all created in the image of God. But we see in that hierarchy that Paul describes that Jesus is, is under the Father. Now, he's part of the Godhead, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, one God expressed in three persons. But in the expression of those persons, there is a hierarchy. Is, does that mean that Jesus is less God than the Father? Absolutely not. What it means is God creates order. He is a God of order. And therefore, as a God of order, he establishes the way in which his creation, made according to his design, made according to his will, he knows the way it's designed to work. And so... This is what we have in scripture. And there is reason for that. And we don't need to make this Bible study about all those reasons, but only to say this. We see in our day so many different battlefronts rebelling against the order of God. The most obvious one, that men can be women and women can be men. In the beginning, God created them, male and female. It's unequivocal. There's no, I mean... 6,000 years of common sense agreement, right? Babies born, what is the first thing they do? They turn it over. Oh, okay, here's your new son. I mean, it's never, anyway, there is throughout our culture right now a flaming battle over the order that God has created. This is one of those battlegrounds. So I'm gonna, I'm gonna teach this, assuming that um, we're all on board. Uh, this is what God has given us. Um, and so the, um, the one thing that's different, I, I said at the outset of the Bible study, is that the character uh, criteria here in, in the passage we just read, it's, it's aimed specifically at the elder or, or, or uh, bishop. But it, it, it's common to all Christian people, in my view, that this is something we all should aspire to. So what's the difference between 
someone who's named elder or bishop or pastor and, and the others. Well, it's, it's first of all, that, that the person that's in that position should be far enough along the track of sanctification that they could lay some credible claim to possessing these qualities. Nobody's perfect. We're going to get into this in a moment. What does it mean when it says that the person must be blameless? But they are at least far enough along that the evidence of their character conforms to what we're reading about. But there's another difference that's even more important. And that is simply calling. See, when somebody comes into the role of leadership in a church and you're sitting under that leadership, you better pray, you better hope that that individual is called to that position because there are a lot of very fine people. I know many fine people that are not called to be a leader in a church. There's no fault in that. There's no disgrace in that. It is simply a matter, much like the order that God has established between who of the, of the two sexes gets to do this and who does that. I mean, men have not been given the stewardship, the calling, the ministry of bringing children into the world, regardless what anyone is saying right now. Okay? Regardless the latest emoji that Apple has put in the Apple iPhone, okay? There are no pregnant men. That's a stewardship given to women. It's part of God's design. And likewise, calling is something that is determined by the Holy Spirit. I'll give you a perfect example. Acts chapter 20, this is where Paul is giving a farewell speech to the Ephesian elders. And little spoiler alert, that's going to be part of my text for my last message before you on the 25th. But he says there in Acts chapter 20, verse 28, Therefore, take heed to yourselves. He's speaking now to the Ephesian elders, okay? Take heed to yourselves and to all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. See, one of the things that I, I did over the last year and a half of working with Vince and mentoring Vince was determining as best I could in prayer, is this man called to lead this church? First of all, is he called to lead a church? Secondly, is he called to lead this church? And, and I got perfect peace about the fact that this calling is on his life. Now, he, he's a wonderful man. But if he didn't have that calling, I think the Lord would show it to him. And because of the fervent prayer that I put up there, I think he would have showed it to me. Um, and so the Holy Spirit has to call a man to have the requisites to be able to pastor, teach a, a gift of teaching, a gift of ruling or administrating, a gift of shepherding, uh, a, a, a desire to guard the truth, a desire to see the affairs of the church moving forward. And so this is right from the get-go. This is a position for a man. It's a man who is called by God to do this specific thing. Now, he gives the qualifications of an elder between verses two and seven. 
And the first one there <laughs> is, the, is the one that anybody who does this job would be deeply troubled about. I have to say, as I studied this passage this week, it's like, uh, blameless. Um, gee, Paul, could you have used a different word? Like, like maybe a really good guy or, or uh, uh, never killed anybody or something, you know, lower the bar a little bit. Um, but what, what's being said here is that the life of somebody in the leadership of the church should be what you might say as being above reproach. By that, I mean that there is nothing obvious there that is part of the makeup of this individual that Satan could get a hold of to discredit the ministry. Right now, another big battle going on in the Southern Baptist Convention, but this isn't limited to them. It's not limited to the Catholic Church. It's throughout the church where individual clergy people have preyed upon the flock in a sexual way. Now, now think about, well, let me just impart to you the job of pastor one of, one of the most rewarding aspects of it and, and, and at the same time the most troubling aspect of it is you get down and deep into the vulnerabilities of people. You get down and deep into the issues of their life. You see them brokenhearted and your heart breaks for them. And many times, I hope my, my brother here, Nick, never has to find this out, but it's often been said that you make some really lifelong friends in a foxhole. When bombs are going off around you, when your life is threatened, and, and that person in that foxhole next to you uh, holds your life in his hands because of the fact that he's got your back and you got his six and all of that. Well, it's the same. It's true in real life that, or in ordinary life, I should say, that when you go through hard times with people, there's a bond there. This is, this is the hardest part that will be on me when I step away from being the pastor here. It's not, it's not the teaching. It's not the, you know, hearing people call you pastor this or that. No, it's being in the foxhole with each and every one of you. But the enemy can use that kind of intimate understanding of a person a person who's vulnerable can use that to tempt the pastor to exploit that. And many have. They end up drawing that person in. This is why a man in pastorate should never counsel a woman by himself. Never. The ideal formula, counsel that woman with your wife. And if, if need be, have your wife counsel that woman. Or another woman in the church of maturity and wisdom because you get into that foxhole together man you start there's a bond there and it can be a, a wonderfully healthy bond and that's the way I feel about the times that I've been in, in in difficult situations with any of you and other people throughout the years that I've ministered to there's a bond there an understanding a love that's that's real and genuine and precious and I can say with hand on heart, I have never abused that privilege that you have given me to allow me into your life to help bring the light of the Lord into it. But there have been those that have. And this is why when you talk about someone who's blameless, it's not the same as a sinless life. I certainly don't have one. I don't know any pastor who's got a sin, sinless life. By all, by all means, no. But you should have a life that to anybody viewing you as a person, you could say, 
you know, this guy, this guy is on solid ground. He walks the way of the Lord, giving nothing that the enemy could grab onto to discredit the ministry and, and, and discredit the Lord. And this is why people who are on the outside of the church look at the church and they, they hold it in derision. Because whenever there's some pastor somewhere that stumbles, of course, that will be front page news. You'll never see on front page news that a church did an outreach, led hundreds to Christ and, and fed people who were starving or whatever. You never see that headline. This headline you see is the one guy somewhere who, who fell. And that's what people hear about the church. Now, here's another one. Husband of one wife. And this is one that has been debated over the, the centuries. It, first of all, let me say, it doesn't mean, it's not a command that one must be married to do one of these offices, okay? Um, in my experience, and I think the Bible backs me up on this, marriage is desirable for somebody who does this kind of work because <laughs> what you learn over the course of marriage is marriage was not designed by God to make you happy, that's not the primary. No, let me finish. <laughs> it, it sounds like a, you know, it sounds like a line from a comedy show. But let me finish. <laughs> the principal objective of marriage is not necessarily happiness; it's holiness, because you are you are now taking a fully formed human being with its own. Uh, predilections and desires and all of that. And you're, you're joining the two, he says, shall become one flesh. And so now these two discrete people, personalities, must surrender to one another. They must give themselves over to the other. And that's the essence of holiness. Now, if you're doing that, an exhaust benefit of that process is happiness. The kind of happiness, see, see, we got to the right answer at the end. It's, it's joy, it's wonderful, it's, it's great. Um, and so husband of one wife means that this individual is living well in his first ministry. My first ministry was Michelle. Before I was even saved, my first ministry was my wife. My first Godly thing was to give myself over to her. And if I am not successful in that, how could I possibly lead a church? Now, there's been a lot of talk about, well, what about the man whose wife has passed? What about the man who has been, has, has been through a divorce? And these are hard questions. I want to just share with you um, a take on this from a Bible commentator and pastor I deeply respect, and I know many of you do too, David Guzik. This is what he said about this criteria of husband of one wife. He said, the idea here is of a one-woman man. It is not that a leader must be married. If so, then Jesus and Paul could not be spiritual leaders in our churches. Nor is it the idea that the teacher should never marry if his wife has passed away or was biblically divorced. The idea is that that. Love and affection and heart is given to one woman, that being his lawful and wedded wife. This means that the biblical leader is not a playboy, an adulterer, a flirt, does not show romantic or sexual interest in other women, including the depictions or images of women in pornography. 
So basically, your attention as, as, a, as a man of one wife, your, your entire attention from an from a affectionate, intimate perspective is all directed at this one woman who happens to be your wife. And that's what it means to be a man of uh, one, one wife. Or, um, yeah. Now it goes on to say that he must be uh, temperate, sober-minded of good behavior. And this is somebody, it's describing somebody who is who's careful, who's orderly, not given to uh, whipping back and forth between extremes, uh, somebody who's reliable and trustworthy. This idea of sober-minded, I think, especially in the context of pastor, needs to be focused on because in our day of mass media, there's an awful lot of pastors who, who succumb to the temptation of seeing themselves as an entertainer. I mean, let's face it, if you're in front of a big crowd and, and you, know, you have a funny side to your personality and you say a few things that are funny and you get this great response from people in the crowd, it's like sugar, you know, a little bit of sugar is good and therefore you want a lot of sugar. Or, and, and before you know it, you've kind of moved off of the real reason why you're up there, which is to expose the word of God, not to entertain folks. And so to be sober-minded would, would be, you know, to understand and not lose sight of your mission. It's funny because as I was going through that sober-minded, I'm thinking, well, what I know about group dynamics is if you got 12 people who are traveling together, like the apostles were traveling with Jesus, you know, different personalities emerge, the serious guy, you know, the aggressive guy, but there's always a jokester. There's always the funny guy. So I started thinking through the apostles, which one of those men would have been the funny guy? Probably wouldn't be Peter. Peter would either be, you know, leading the way or pulling his foot out of his mouth. So it's probably not him. Uh, it could have been Andrew. Younger brothers always tend to be kind of funny. Um, definitely wouldn't be John or James. They were the sons of thunder. So they were kind of the machismo uh, wing of the group. And, and I kind of settled on Nathaniel, who in a lot of scriptures referred to as Bartholomew, because he's the man about whom was said, here's a man of no guile. He's the guy who, when he was told, hey, there's this really cool guy, Jesus of Nazareth, his first thing he said was, can, can anything good come out of Nazareth? So I thought, well, he probably is the funny guy. I don't know, maybe when Jesus was, was going to, uh, you know, make the loaves and fishes feed all these people. Maybe, maybe Nathaniel would have slipped them a rubber chicken. Say, hey, do one of these. I don't know. Uh, but there's, there's, there's always somebody who's, who's, you know, the funny guy. But in the, in the role of pastor, elder, it doesn't mean you can't have a sense of humor. But I think you're constantly under the temptation to be moved off of the mission. You know, uh, again, I'll say it again, a guy that I deeply admire in the way he, his sermons, his writings was A.W. Tozer. But if you read about Tozer, he was not an electrifying speaker, not at all. And yet some of the observations that he made about the scriptures and how they apply to our lives are just pure gold uh, of good behavior. The idea here is orderly, um, you know. It, it says here also that he should be hospitable should be welcoming of people. He should, should have a desire to connect with people and minister to people. And a lot of times, the best way to connect and minister to somebody is to have them for a meal. 
and, and to you know, sit down with them in a, in a more intimate setting and, and really minister to them. And this is something that they, they should be able to do. It also says here in, um, in verse 2 that they should be able to teach. Now, not every person who has the title of elder would necessarily want to be or maybe would be suited to be teaching the entire flock. But suitable or able to teach should certainly mean that they are capable of mentoring an individual. They are capable of, of, of teaching a, a smaller group, let's say a home fellowship or whatever, that they would be able to impart their wisdom, the wisdom of the word of God to people who are anxiously waiting to hear it. This is, this is part of the overseeing of the flock. You want to feed the flock, you want to protect the flock, you want to minister to the flock. And so that's really part of uh, what it is to be a, a pastor, elder, or bishop, as they call it. Um, not given to wine. Now, that's, this is another one that's debated a lot, especially in modern times. Uh, the idea here is obviously not being somebody who is habitually a drinker. I've always viewed that from my personal perspective is don't go there. I don't go there. I haven't had a drink since I was 33 or 4 years old. And the reason is that anything like that, that is, let's, let's face it, wine, beer, whatever, it's neutral. It's not evil in and of itself. It's not intrinsically evil. I mean, in the day that... that this was written, people drank wine as their go-to drink because the water was so bad, okay? But it has the capacity or the, or, or the possibility to lead you to a place where it starts to rule you. It becomes a strong, it can become a stronghold in your life. And so, whereas it says not, not given to wine, it is to say, it isn't my go-to drink. It isn't something I'm going to do. I never know when I'm ministering to somebody that, that they may, but that they may have been an alcoholic in their life. Maybe they're a recovering alcoholic. Or maybe somebody who's new to the faith. They come into the faith. They had a history of drinking a lot. It caused them great trouble in their life. It caused them such trouble that it brought them to their knees and they humbled themselves and they accepted Christ. Now they're, they're out with me. We go out, we have lunch. I order first. Oh, let's see. Um, not going to have a Bud Light. I'll have a Michelob Light. <laughs> and now this person sees me partaking of, of a beer. They say, oh, well, as a Christian, it must be okay. And so they order a beer. And then you, you've now led them right back off the cliff because of that one drink. You, to my way of thinking, it's not something that any elder, pastor, whatever, should do. It's not, I don't believe it's a hardwired prohibition, but I do think it is great advice to say, don't go there. Certainly don't make it a feature of your life. Um, not violent. Whoops, I missed one. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> um, <laughs> this is a person who's not, who doesn't have a violent temperament either in private or in public. Um, there are lots of people who have that kind of temperament, and, and that's something that you would beg that the Lord would work on as a Christian man or woman, that if you have a violent tendency, you should, you should be praying to the Lord to take that away from you. Jesus was not a violent man, okay? He was not a violent man. He was a powerful man without violence. And so 
Certainly, somebody who is leading a church should not have that reputation as violent. Not greedy for money. Now, this is a huge one as well because, um, gosh, in, uh, in the King James Version, it, it's put far more memorably. It says, uh, not greedy of filthy lucre. And again, money is neutral until the point in time when it becomes an idol, when it becomes all that you're about, and then it becomes filthy and it becomes dirty. And more churches than any of us would care to number or name have been corrupted by leadership of the church, making the church all about money. And, and it becomes de- demoralizing to the flock because they come in and, and all they're, they're hearing is another clever sermon that ultimately gets around to, you know, just leave your wallet in the back as you leave and, and, and all of that. Or, or we find uh, ministers whose motivation to be in the ministry is to enrich themselves. And a pastor who is working in a church and being paid an appropriate salary should have a decent, you know, should be able to support their family. But it's not a get-rich kind of um, profession, or at least not get-rich-quick. I mean, a lot of these well-known pastors publish books and things, and they do pretty well with that. But when it becomes the motivation for ministry, it's a pretty good indication that that individual was not called by the Holy Spirit. Because a calling from the Holy Spirit is a humbling thing that you, you, you take with ginger, gingerly hand, hands that are holding it like it's precious and it could break and you don't want to do that. And so certainly not uh, greedy for money. It says also there, gentle. And this is an important one. Gentle doesn't mean uh, less masculine at all. Uh, you look again at the example of Jesus. We want to be a Jesus kind of man. Jesus was a man's man. He, make no mistake about it. You know, some of the modern depictions of Jesus are almost making him effeminate. That was not the man. It's not the profile that comes out in scripture. Jesus had the kind of courage, the kind of resolute stick to the the will of the father that that is one of the most exemplary qualities that a man could have that i'm standing for this bible uses that word a lot to stand and above all else to stand it says there in uh, ephesians 6 i believe to stand you don't have to be a violent you know action hero type guy who's blazing guns mowing everybody down that gets near you no uh, the spoken word of god can break a bone I mean, it is that powerful. And so gentleness is, is very important because you want to be approach, approachable. It says they're not quarrelsome. Again, this is something that destroys a lot of churches. The inner leadership group are very quarrelsome and contentious with one another. That spills out into the, the church body. And it, before you know it, you become factionalized. This was something that Paul was warning and, and schooling the Corinthian church about in the, in the first letter to the Corinthians. I'm, I'm, I'm under this guy. I'm following that guy. Well, that guy's no good. I got this guy as my main guy. That kind of thing should not happen in the church. And it can often start within the leadership of the church. Equally, when people come to you with a difficult issue or they come to you, this is more common, they come to you with criticism. I don't like the way you taught that. I don't like the way the service went. I don't like the message you taught. I don't like the way your hair looks. 
I don't like the fact that you don't have any here. You don't know what's going to come at you. And when it does, dealing with it with gentleness is not only necessary, but it's pretty hard <laughs> at times. But it's, 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 it's vital. People need to see that the word of God living in you through the spirit of God can allow you to approach a situation that may be hot and pointed at you and deal with it with, with gentleness and patience and, and not be quarrelsome. It says not covetous. You know, a person who is constantly dissatisfied with what God has given them as their portion is probably not fit for leadership among God's people. It's often said that coveting is the last of the Ten Commandments, but it's the one that causes you to do all the other nine. You want something that you don't have that someone else has. And one of the most pernicious uh, instances of coveting among ministry is coveting another man's ministry. Well, his church is bigger than mine or his, his worship leader is better than ours or whatever. And it, it gets weird. This is, this is another example of how the enemy can take something so vile and put it right in the midst of ministry. And, and you'd think, well, it's ministry. Those things don't happen here. Well, yes, they do or they can. And so the warning is well, well placed there. Verse four and five. One who rules his own house well, having his children in submission with all reverence. For if a man does not know how to rule his own house, how will he take care of the church of God? Now, that's a sobering one. Raising children is probably the hardest thing any of us do. But the, the wisdom there is, is spot on. I said at the beginning uh, that my first ministry was my wife, right? That's the first stewardship that God gave me in his design of things Marriage is his design. Okay, young man, you want to marry this woman? Here's a stewardship for you. So that's number one. But then the children come along. And this makes me, it makes you who have children, priests in your home. You intercede for them. You guide them. You should be teaching them the word of God. And so if you can't do that, if you can't steward your family, why then, why would God call you to steward a church? Now, here's the difficult part. I know from personal experience, and I also know from reading about it, that there are homes that are wonderful Christian homes led by godly parents who dearly love their children and pour their lives into them. And yet, the children, a particular child, goes off the rails, rejecting faith, living in the world, sometimes with disastrous consequences. Does that mean that that individual, let's say the father of that home, would be absolutely disqualified from leading in a church? It depends. My first bit of advice would be, maybe you got enough going on right there that you should put your full attention there. But here's the thing. When a child of, of a Christian family goes horribly wrong, there's questions that need to be asked. Was that a failure of parenting? Or was that something else indeed? I mean, there's some famous prodigals out there. Franklin Graham being a very publicized one. He himself has brought it up in many of his Bible lessons and whatnot. He walked away from everything that his father and mother were about. They're godly parents. 
smoking, drinking, getting in trouble, getting kicked out of school. They had to send him up to a private school in New York and he got kicked out of that. Was it a failure of parenting? Personally, I don't think so because guess what? As the scripture says, train up a child, uh, train up a child in the way he should go and when he is older, he will return to it. And he did. And he's ministering. Christopher Laurie, Greg Laurie's oldest son. Unbelievable prodigal child. Went a long way in the wrong way. Came back. Restored. Serving in his father's church as the artistic director of the church. And then the Lord took him home in a, in a fatal car accident on the motorway. But came back. See, there's, there's all kinds of stories like that. Maybe some of those stories are your stories. Where in spite of the best efforts to pour into your children, to teach them, to bless them, to give them a godly example, for, for whatever reason, they go a different way. And, and buddy, in this day and age, with every, every person is connected to the internet with a device in their hand and they're looking at these things constantly and the public schools have basically completely rejected the Judeo-Christian ethic and have gone in a whole different diametrically opposed way. The challenges have never been greater. There's going to be a lot of kids that go the wrong way and a lot of them are going to come out of great Christian homes. So this is a complex one, um, one to be looked at very, very clearly. Not a novice, verse 6. Lest being puffed up with pride, he fall into the same condemnation as the devil. One of the worst mistakes that a, that a pastor can make, especially a pastor who's planted a church and they're starting out and they got this little nascent church and they want to set up as a church. We, we need to be a church. We need to have an elder board, etc. And so and the first three men that walk in the door become the elders. And this is, this is a problem. I mean, they may, you know, may have Las Vegas luck and they're all great guys, but typically it's a disaster. And this is why the best thing in the case of a small church or a church that's just starting out is to construct your elder board from outside men, other pastors maybe, until the point in time when you have had a chance to shepherd other men along to provide mentoring to create and to develop leaders in your midst. Don't just do it because you need to fill the chairs because novices, a novice would be somebody who has not been a believer long enough to have the sanctification process work in their lives to the point where they have been humbled. Sometimes novices in anything are, are blessed with all kinds of ignorance so they don't know what they don't know. And when you don't know what you don't know, the three things you know you think is all there is to know, and so you're a genius. <laughs> Until you start applying those three things and they're blowing up in your face. So you need somebody who's had enough swings at the bat to know what it is to strike out. Babe Ruth held the home run record for years and years till Hank Aaron came along. What never gets said about Hank Aaron is he also led the history books in strikeouts. He knew how to hit a ball because he missed a lot of them. And that's, there, there's a lot of wisdom in that in terms of who you have leading your church. Don't want a novice, a newly planted individual. And then verse 7, a good testimony among those who are outside. Now, I love that. What, what that one is saying is you need to have a reputation that anybody outside of the church would look at and say, I don't believe that nonsense he believes, but he's a good guy. He's a really good guy. This is important because... The only gospel that non-believers are going to read or hear initially is going to be your life. We're living epistles. And so if 
there can sometimes be a perverted sense within the church that I only need to be nice and civil to people in the church because the rest of those people are heathen. They're going to burn anyway. No, that's missing our mission altogether. Our mission is to bring those people in. And if they look at your life and they say, this guy calls himself a Christian, but I've seen him cheat on his taxes and do this and do that. And no, we, we don't want that reputation. We want a Christ-like witness before people that they might um, that they might be interested in what it is that is the power in our lives. Now we move quickly to the qualifications for deacons, and let me just start out by saying, take everything we just talked about and apply it there. Because he starts right out with the first word in verse 8, likewise, which is to say all that stuff I just said, same thing here, same thing with deacons. Likewise, deacons must be reverent, not double-tongued, not given to much wine, not greedy for money, holding the mystery of the faith with a pure conscience, but let these also be tested, then let them serve as deacons, being found blameless. Likewise, their wives must be reverent, not slanderers, temperate, faithful in all things. Let deacons be the husband of one wife, ruling their children and their own houses well. For those who have served well as deacons obtain for themselves a good standing and great boldness in the faith, which is in Christ Jesus." Now, if we look at these, again, likewise, deacons, we're, we're seeing here that they are of a similar cut. They are the same kind of individual in terms of character that, um, that the, applied to the elders. Now, if you recall back in Acts chapter 6, deacons came into being, and, and a deacon is merely a servant, a minister. The deacons came into being in the early church when the apostles realized that because of all, as the church expanded, there were a lot of people in the church that had needs. They had physical needs. They needed food. They needed help in their homes. Maybe they needed a roof over their head. Maybe they needed whatever. And the apostles were the ones that everyone was going to because they were the ones that were kind of front and center. And finally, they had to get everybody together and from the group appoint deacons who could be given 100% to the kind of helps ministries that are vital in the church, but cannot be reason to be taking the teaching elders away from the process of praying for the flock and teaching them. And so this came into being. Um, the, uh, the qualifications that are, that are called out here, obviously they must be reverent. We've already kind of covered that with, with uh, respect to the elders not double-tongued. So you, you, you don't want somebody who's a spin master. If I'm talking to you, I spin the truth this way to, to get you out of my faith, and I'm talking to the pa pastor, uh, I spin it a different way. No, you need to be somebody who says it like it is and tells the truth. Not given to much wine, we've been there. Not greedy for money, we've talked about that. Holding the mystery of the faith with a pure conscience. This would say that this is an individual who is who is so convinced and convicted of the word of God that they act it out, that in their ministry to the needs of the body, going and helping somebody at their home, preparing food for somebody, all that, they, they hold the mysteries of the faith, the things that are spelled out in the word of God, they hold it as truth and they live out that truth and they convey that truth to other people, both in word and in deed. And this is vital for really, again, for all people who represent the Lord and the church as they approach other people. He says there, um, 
let these also be first tested. First be tested. That is an expression of, a, of, a, of an approach we've taken since the beginning here. We tend to name people in a particular role of leadership or whatever when we've seen that they've already been doing the job. We're, we're very light on titles, frankly, in this church. We don't have a lot of titles. I think sometimes people get too wrapped up in titles. And, and it becomes a, a point of contention and a point of argument. And, 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 and it causes people to focus on the wrong thing. Our focus is first the Lord and secondly the people. And so if you're going to name somebody a deacon or whatever, look for the person who's already serving. They're already doing the job. That was the way I always approached elders too. The people who are already shepherding the flock. They're already ministering uh, the word of God. They're already living out an example before people. That's, that's the most sure way to, um, to handle that ministry. Um, it says there in verse 11, likewise, their wives must be reverent, not slanderous, temperate, faithful in all things. Now, this raises some interesting questions. Is this opening the door to the possibility that women could be deacons? Or is it simply speaking about the kind of woman that should be alongside the man who is a deacon? And, and here's my take on this. This is not a thus saith the Lord pronouncement here. But for example, in the church I attended in an Atlanta area for nine years, Sandy Adams Church, we had deacons and deaconesses. There were women who had that office of ministry. You'd say, well, oh my gosh, is, are we going to have a Calvary Chapel convention to vote on disfellowship? No. The deacon's role is not necessarily a teaching role. It is a servant role. And frankly, there are, in any given church, I don't care which one you want to point me to, the backbone of the, the helps ministry of that church is probably predominantly women. And so a lot of churches do formally put that title on women. And I'm, I'm okay with that. I mean, I, I, that doesn't trouble me because it's not a, a teaching ministry per se. Um, or you could look at it as the deacon man and wife are kind of a package deal. Now, I consider Michelle and myself a package deal. I don't imagine I would or could do my job as pastor without her by my side. She is not the pastor. She doesn't teach the flock. She doesn't do the things I do. But her support of the things I do is irreplaceable. And I think this is true of anybody who's in a leadership ministry in church. So you could look at the wives of deacons as the completion of that guy's office. But I, I, I think it could be that you could have women who serve as deaconesses. But I want to say one other thing about what verse 11 has as an underlying message. Wives must be reverent, not, not slanderous, temperate, faithful in all things. My personal view is that God would never call a man to a ministry that he does not also call his wife to be alongside him in that ministry. In other words, I would never imagine that God has called a man to a ministry and that calling does not have any, uh, any address to his wife because that engenders the, the likelihood of tension and maybe even blowing up that marriage. I've literally seen it where a man was so desirous of being a pastor and when he couldn't be the pastor he wanted to be in the church he was in, went out, started his own church, had a wonderful, beautiful, godly wife 
who was never felt to be called into that kind of ministry, and it blew up their marriage. And so wives, who are the wives of a pastor, elder, bishop, deacon, whatever, the way in which they carry themselves in the flock is going to have a profound effect on the success or failure of that man's ministry. He's going to need her support. He's going to need her wisdom. He's going to need her touch. He's going to need the complement of her skill set to his skill set. And when those things are at odds, it's a disaster. It's a disaster for the marriage, a disaster for the church. Um, For those, last verse, verse 13, for those who have served well as deacons, obtain for themselves a good standing and great boldness in the faith, which is in Christ Jesus. I think one of the things that that verse is conveying is a nod towards deacons that, look, a lot of the work you're going to do, no one's ever going to know. No one's going to see it. They may not even appreciate it. You may have spent two Saturdays of your life putting down new carpet in the fellowship hall only to have people take, I don't like that carpet. I don't like that color. (laughs) What the Lord is saying is, You've got good standing before the Lord. The Lord sees your labors. The Lord sees the people who do the the invisible and difficult and sometimes dirty jobs of the church. And what he has for them is the same, well done, my good and faithful servant, that anybody else in the kingdom is going to hear. And in some respects, they may have greater honor because of the level of sacrifice they had to render to do what God called them to do. And so... In my waning weeks here, I I thought it would be important to once again go through these because quickly after my time, I'm sure there's going to be leadership changes, dynamics in, in relationships that will morph into whatever the church is going to be going forward. And these principles are timeless. Don't let anyone tell you that, well, this is now the 21st century and all that. No, if we had been adhering to these principles, perhaps the 21st century church would be a lot healthier than we seem to see it now. So let's hold those close to us, Lord. Heavenly Father, we thank you, God, for your wisdom, for your truth, for the way in which you have made it clear to us what we need to have as leaders in our church. And I pray, Father, over this church that going forward, Lord, Nothing would cause the church leadership to stray from these principles. That we would continue to have a clear and discerning eye in who we place in positions of overseeing this flock, Lord. Continue to raise up and and develop new leadership here, Lord. Continue to breathe new life into us, Lord. Continue to anoint and guide this church. Pray it all in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. God bless you. Thank you for listening to Get Fed Today. Today's sermon comes from Pastor David Marini. If you enjoy the message, you can learn more about Pastor David's ministry by visiting calvarychapelchapelhill.org.